0: It may be invisible to some or ever-present to others, but trauma entangles us all. Welcome to Traumatize, brought to you by Network for Victim Recovery of D.C. Traumatize is a podcast that creates space and conversations to untangle the societal knots that keep us from addressing trauma after crime. For you, we want this podcast to be an experience, one where you leave understanding how you can be a crossing point to minimize the deeply painful and costly consequences of trauma, no matter who you are.
1: Welcome to Traumatize, where we believe trauma is a common thread of human connection. My name is Bridget Stump, and I'm here with my co-host, Lindsay Silverberg.
2: Hi, everybody. Bridget and I have mentioned our own experiences with medical systems and trauma so this particular important conversation, we're really excited to have with our guest today. Our guest is Erin Seahall, a trauma surgeon at MedStar Washington Hospital Center, medical director for the Surgical Intensive Care Unit, and the medical director of MedStar Washington Hospital Center Community Violence Intervention Program. Hi, Erin. Welcome. Hey, thank you.
1: We're so happy to have you. And can I call you Aaron? Yes, please. I go back and forth depending no. on like what environment we're in. Um, I know. So, Aaron, that's what I'm going to call you I today. Um, yeah. I, it's so nice to see you. And I really want to honor the important work that you do. So, it's important for me to ask and refer to you appropriately in a way that honors the important work you do. Aaron, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background? And I'd really love to hear more about your role because you treat physical trauma. We've talked a lot on this podcast about really a focus on psychological trauma. And I'd love to hear more about your beliefs and understanding of that connection between psychological and physical trauma in your role.
3: So starting off with a real softball there, that's uh, that's great. So what I would say is um, there's a very professional answer to that question, which is, and this is the one that I usually lead off with, right, and that's written in my bios of like, I went to Stanford Medical School, and then I did Georgetown General Surgery Residency. I did an MPH at Johns Hopkins. I studied long-term outcomes because I was really interested in this problem of how you track and look at growth and people moving into health, how you define that, what are the things that we can look at really in large databases that we're collecting. And I got interested in all sorts of cool stats, and I did that. And then I went to fellowship at R. Adams Cowley Shock Trauma Center at Maryland. I did a two-year trauma and surgical critical care fellowship. And then I came back and I became a trauma attending surgeon and a critical care doctor. And so that's my kind of CV, right? Like that's The
1: public facing. I love how you say it. So like casual, like, you know, I just happened to become a trauma doctor and I did all these really cool things at really well known, highly established and respected medical institutions. But yeah, that sounds super breezy. I appreciate it. (laughs) Well, and I think it's interesting because that's my armor in a lot of ways,
3: right? Of like, I was highly trained and I did, you can... Infer by these names or other things that, like, I put a lot of work into it and I care deeply about it. And it's a shorthand, right? And it's a really unfair shorthand in a lot of ways. And I sort of use it to my advantage, I think. But more than that, like, I think beyond the armor or like what my personal response to that question would be is the easy part of my job in some ways is identifying physical trauma. And it's the part we're most well-trained at and that I feel like is the kind of exciting sure shot thing of like, I know what to do if somebody's bowel is perforated. I know what to do to stop bleeding or when somebody needs an operation or a chest tube. And it's very ego supportive to be able to do these things and to have this opportunity. And it is humbling And it is a privilege, but it is ultimately, like, this amazing gift in some ways because it is so immediate in the satisfaction. And it is so clear that X led to to Y and, like, that is it. But it is ultimately—it's not ever unsatisfying, but I kept on wondering or I kept on seeing that it's not enough either that there's a physical sewing of something to something else, of blood pressure, heart rate, whatever it is, but that the sequelae of that, meaning all of the physical, emotional, social damages that are done, we don't address at all. And in you know, in some ways we're sort of discouraged from addressing. Or in trauma surgery often will be like, oh, that softy, she's interested in like those things, those social justice things or those like, you know, blah, blah, your, your bleeding heart. Yeah, exactly. But it's really important. And we can't keep on saying that success is a heartbeat at the door. It just doesn't make sense. And what I mean by that is like for decades trauma surgeons have patted themselves on the back when somebody doesn't die during their hospitalization. So it doesn't matter what functional status or emotional status or bankruptcy status or employment status or education status somebody is when they leave. If they have a heartbeat, that's
2: a win. And it's
3: it's just not enough for me.
2: You bring up such an interesting point. And so we're glad that you're here. But <laughs> you're talking about beyond the physical trauma, right, is you see psychological trauma and you see the impact on patients. And so for you, and now that you're, you know, in both of these worlds, um, when you're really trying to address both, how do you see that psychological trauma impacting both the short and long-term outcomes of the patients that you're working with?
3: Yeah, I think we're shielded in a lot of ways from the long-term impacts. And so I think it takes and i'm not saying that i have an amazing amount of empathy but it takes a leap of empathy and imagination and to see it in the like acute settings that we treat and see people in but then also to see it in our colleagues in the trauma patients that come back after clinic in these I think it's most clear in places where there's friction, right, or where there's like a sense of why is this person being frustrating or like, why is it so hard to get to a clinic appointment or why can't they do, why can't they just do X, Y and Z, right? And in my mind, it's, well, there's a thousand answers for that. And some piece of those answers are going to be coping mechanisms Really deep, innate traumas that have been perpetuated. That is not just the gunshot wound that I treated, right? But for most of my gunshot victims that come in in downtown DC, there's a generations of trauma that are built into how people walk down the street and view the world and attack problems or don't attack problems, are able to or not able to. And so, I hesitate to say ever that I would treat psychological trauma just because, one, I'm not trained to, but also our healthcare system is not set up to do so. And when we acknowledge or recognize it in so many ways, it is in these points where like, there's emotional tension between treatment team and patient or between the person that we're really trying to help. And I think stepping back and trying to see it through a lens of... Well, I'm sure it's really hard to come to a hospital where, one, it's like, you know, there's like administrative burden of like even finding parking, right? Or paying for an Uber to get there or a bus route or childcare or all these things. And then you have your I'm late, like me as a practitioner, and you have to wait for half an hour and nobody tells you what to do. And then on top of all of that, like these are the worst moments of your life. And for so many of our DC patients, like they've had people die in this hospital. They've had multiple family members die or be sick or be treated. And we hear that over and over again. And so I don't know how else to answer the question, except there's just so much pain in the world and how we each move through that or powers us or hinders us or enables us or is beautiful and it's unique. And acknowledging that or working through that then to like, well, I need to get you like a multi POTUS boot or a physical therapy appointment or like let's get your resume in order so that we can you can move on is like that, it's this beautiful leap, right? And I don't do it correctly. I don't know. Like it's a good day when I feel like maybe I made that leap okay. <laughs> and so
1: You know, so many things. I'm having a flood of thoughts, and (laughs) Lindsay and I keep looking at each other. My thoughts can't even keep up with what you're bringing up for me. I think just to highlight a few in full candor, the complexity of the intersection of what you're calling pain in the world, I call unaddressed trauma and the consequences and the cost, not just on the individual, the entire community that faces those impacts of unaddressed trauma. And that's, does it power you or does it hinder you? The consequences of either of those paths, right? And so trying to unpack with Lindsay, how do we talk about the intersection of the healthcare system (laughs) and unaddressed trauma in about 30 minutes? And who's the right person? I think we clearly found the right person, but there are a couple of things I wanna highlight and then I wanna go back and dig a little deeper with you on a, a personal question. I think you talk about, the seen and the unseen and the benefit of really a physical trauma is it's seen, it's clear. I don't want to use the word predictable because honestly I couldn't do it. I can't even deal with like spit and like stuff like that. <laughs> just like, I can't do it. So you're like a superhuman to me. They always say like lawyers were like people that wanted to be doctors but couldn't stand the sight of blood. Like, I feel like I'm like one of, although I probably couldn't do it regardless, but it's just so amazing because we look at the stress the acute stress like you're shooting a three point game winning shot every night you go to work right i mean i'm that's our perception like societal perception is like you're legit saving the game like for people you are saving the game and you've got to see it in the moment you've got to respond in the moment and then there's these unseen consequences that you don't even get the opportunity right like you're not the person that's set up to in the healthcare system you might have seen them, you might have saw treated it in the moment, but you aren't the person that's set up to be the long-term care and support. I me mean, historically, but for your program and others in the country that are growing, I haven't really built that institutional system. And I'm excited to talk more about CVIT. But I think what I'm very curious about because of this podcast and really because of Lindsay and her friendship and how she teaches me to be a better leader in the way she leads her team, I've really been deeply unpacking how I show up. And what is it in my lived experience that makes me show up in this very rigid rule? I mean, you've seen me in meetings before, unfocused in some ways because of my creative mind. Others might call it something else, but I'm rule oriented. I like guideposts. They help me predict the dark stairway. They help me know how many steps I'm walking up. I can understand and appreciate the value of going into a role where, where it's so high stakes and the, your adrenaline has to be like y- you operate in the trauma, res- You your psychological trauma response when you're at that level of stress constantly. But I have to get curious because I think about how I've been reflecting on how I show up and why I do what I do. You picked a very high stakes, life-saving job where it's predictable. Tell me what about Aaron, the person, made that a pathway that made sense for you, if you're comfortable.
3: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I just, you know, I'm trying to tease apart the kind of what I would say, like the late night talk show answer. That's like not false, but it's one that I've given in the past. And again, not more truthful, but just more private answers. I would say, My late night answer is that I really became interested in health as a human right. And then I think what drives me is trying to integrate and be true to that. And it became very clear early on that the crunchy specialties are sort of like internal medicine or infectious disease. And I thought, I want to, I'm interested in health as a human right. I'm going to go to like the Amazon jungle and like do infectious disease malaria prevention work or, you know, something like that. But there is a beauty to surgery and to operating in those moments where. There are very clear questions that absolutely matter, and everything else falls away. And so the priorities are very clear. And I loved having to have that rigor of thought and then uniting that thought to real action. And there is a beauty to it, and it is not like anything else. It's just like I haven't found anything else like it. And it's very straightforward in some ways. And it can be certainly it's humbling in the fact that, like, I feel grateful and I come at it from a a, a sense of gratitude, but also humbling in the fact that sometimes you you don't get it right. Mm-hmm. No matter how many years we practice, mm-hmm. no matter how well trained we are, no matter what my CV looks Even like. Even Michael
1: Jordan missed a few three pointers.
3: Exactly, And. And sometimes people are too far gone, and you, no matter what you do, you can't save them. So the selfish part of it all is that, that it is real clear, and it is, it's a straight line of this kind of important questions that you answer in the moment, that you then act on, that you then see results from, and this beautiful feedback loop that's tied together with something that I really believe in, which is this health is a human right. And so we don't know who the person is in front of us when they come in. We don't know what their insurance status is. We don't know what their name is. We don't know what they've done or who, and it doesn't matter. Um, and that it's one of the actual few places in medicine or maybe in the world or in the country where that's true, where we don't make assumptions. And it, it just really doesn't matter because we will go to the line and sometimes, even beyond a line in this quest mm-hmm.
1: to save this person in in a sort of equitable way, yeah. Right? and exactly. I think that's that's been the challenge, and I want Lindsay to jump in here. but I think what's been the challenge for me in my own personal experience has been seeing inequities in who gets adequate health care, who gets the the privilege and the benefit of Preventative healthcare, and you're right. I never, until you just said that out loud. Now I'm starting to piece together the, the puzzle that is Dr. Hall because I'm like, oh, it is connected to the human right because no one's making an assessment: Are you worth saving your life? You're trained in that moment to do that, and in every other context, right? I mean, I've never showed up at the drama bay. I mean, I've had other things that are not fun, but I think I've never, um, I've never known a place in the healthcare system where there was real-time equity and you saying that out loud, all of a sudden I'm, I'm getting this click of that's where it works for you. And I want to dive more into that, but I think I want to give you an opportunity to talk about your role specifically as the medical director at MedStar, where you are really overseeing the community violence intervention program and the intersection that those patients coming in with real physical trauma wounds have not only a future trauma to navigate, but a often a historical, whether that's circumstantial by society based on structural design of racism and other forms of oppression, or if that's lived experiences, other marginalized identities. I want to learn, and for folks that aren't familiar, a little bit more about how did becoming the medical director of that role kind of give you the opportunity to bring the elements that you just talked about of Healthcare is a human right. How did that come to life in this program?
3: That moment of equity happens with critically ill trauma patient coming to bay. So it actually becomes smaller and smaller and smaller when we start to think about the way we treat, like gunshot wound to leg not critically ill or other trauma patients. But so then it comes back to this question of is heartbeat at the door enough? No. And how do we bring that moment of equity to spread and permeate the rest of our care as a trauma team? Because we do it for those folks, those folks that are coming and dying, like they, and how do we then make it an inflection point into better health? And this is a little around this equity, and I promise I will talk about CVIP soon, but, you know, we basically do a Mayo Clinic executive workup of every trauma patient that comes through. Like, they will get a CT scan. They will get an echo. They will get their blood pressure taken every hour. They will get labs out the yin-yang. They will get all of this resources thrown at them, and then we don't do anything with that, right? And we are also, they don't have to choose to come, unfortunately. And so it's an opportunity for wraparound services, too, So to recognize those other forms of trauma, inequities, kind of this other form we have of setting people up for failure rather than setting them up for success. And I would say what CVIP is really about, that's our community violence intervention program, is to say, you've had this moment, maybe it's the worst moment of your life, but you're in the hospital. We need to recognize the fact that this is a foreign land for you, that there is Very few touch points that seem familiar, that seem safe in any kind of way. But it can also be a place that has an unbelievable amount of resources to help you. And so, can we build that bridge between person laying in bed, hospital gown, butt flying out, and really practical ways to make your life better or to set you on a pathway? that you define for yourself, can we help you with that? And so our program um, employs treatment navigators who are folks with lived experience with trauma to help bridge that gap to serve as translator in some way. But then also follow folks out for six months. We offer services around. And again, all of this, I really want to make anchored in the participant desire and experience. And oftentimes it starts off with like, well, they told me I had to get to physical therapy. So I need an Uber to physical therapy. I'm like, okay, we can do that. Like let's start there. Like, I need to get my to my trauma clinic appointment. Yes, we can do that. That's very practical. But as that trust starts to build, like yes, we will do these things for you. But also trying to open up those conversations to where do you see yourself or what does health look like for you? What would make you happy? What would make you satisfied? And then taking practical steps to get you there. And being somebody, and I'm trying to find a a less cliched way of saying this, but to walk with you through that. It's not doing it for you. But it's saying like, sometimes just somebody being in the room while you make a hard phone call that you don't want to make helps and sometimes just like a text that says hey did you do this like how can i you know here's the here's the link to the website so you don't have to look it up or whatever it is helps and then we're also trying to really push the limits or not push the limits but innovate of what are the other resources we can bring to bear Because all of this is trying to make people healthier and safer at the end of the day. So to prevent repeat violence is how we talk about it. But really what we're talking about is an inflection to better health. And so that's access to justice to people. That's reframing how they look at lawyers and the law as like instead of systems of oppression to ways of addressing social determinants of health, like housing you know, employment, access to um, to benefits. And it's also about crime victims advocacy and saying, you know, how can we be an amplifier for your voice? So how can we help you make decisions, again, in these systems that have been oppressive, that people are going to have very strong opinions about what the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do is, but... It's hard to find a trusted messenger with good information to let you make your own decision and to talk through what does that look like, really? What are the things that are important to you? And I hope in our own way, by doing these things, we're, if not treating that psychological trauma, at least soothing it almost or going into some degrees of like, how do we build back a personality or how do, we, how do we allow you to be who you are and embrace all of that history and what it was and the things that you've survived and been through and then help you be who you want to be, too?
2: I have so many thoughts about this. One of the things I feel like I'm hearing you say is that you're giving people language to be able to describe. And, the, and what we talk about and have talked about in other episodes is that problem with trauma is that There isn't a shared language that people maybe don't recognize it. And I think the sort of interesting spot that you all are sitting in with the survivors that you're serving is, you're right, they're not coming in of their own choice. They are being brought in because they are critically in danger of dying, potentially. And that's different from the responses that we do for sexual assault survivors often, right, who are choosing to engage in this system. And so the piece that I find fascinating is that the survivors you're dealing with have medical trauma on top of the psychological trauma, right? Because now they are having to walk through and navigate this entire medical system that's really not set up to see and treat people often, is at least the way it feels when we experience It's set up in the
3: United States to extract money from people.
2: <laughs> right, I mean, that's... right. And I think about the work that you guys are doing is, one, I would love to see that kind of across the board in all sectors when people are dealing with medical issues, that they, whether that be cancer, whether that be heart issues, like things like having that advocate to be able to walk with you, give the language, translate, like that's such a powerful word to use to be able to translate for people experiencing this. And I'm curious if the survivors that you're working with Do they leave with that sort of trauma language or understanding of what they've experienced? And and how do you guys talk to them about that? I think we do a really actually horrible job (laughs) of both talking
3: to ourselves, but also our patients about our own. I like to use the word pain because trauma is so specifically like injury or physical trauma to me, but... We expect a lot of ourselves and our patients in that emotional load or that load of pain or energy, right? Uh, That even if it feeds back to you and it's a beautiful moment of empathy and connection with somebody that you feel like, I supported them in this. We, I, I shouldn't say we, I do a really bad job of, maybe accepting help or asking for help or identifying that pain and exhaustion as something other than like, oh, this is, it's not exactly part of the job, but it's like, it's this piece of it that you kind of work through. And, you know, like I, I wish I had a better coping mechanism or like a more eloquent way of, uh, of talking about it, but I'm just, even experiences today, it was really highlighted for me, one, how bad I am about my own, but also failures that I've had even with my team about talking with it and talking about how to take care of ourselves and the pain, the pain that they are undergoing just by being the support system and advocate, much less our patients,
2: right? And so... Because no, nope, we're not, not that. Yeah, that's not that's not something people talk about, and and especially I would imagine in the healthcare field, it is not seen as a um, a point of celebration when people are identifying that they are feeling the uh, mental load from carrying other folks' trauma.
1: I really am just wanting to jump in here, listening to you. Um, I can't even keep up. You're describing what, in the legal field, the terminology has become compassion fatigue, yeah. you know, in other spaces, vicarious secondary trauma. And um, I'm a little fascinated by it because of how it shows up for you because of your role. Mm-hmm. So we, we do a lot of trainings with, with police, with lawyers, other first responders, courts. And we talk about how, depending on our lived experience and our lens, we develop a baseline of how we define trauma. And it's based off of how we've seen the world. Well, I would bet, correct me if I'm wrong, Erin, you are up here when we talk about hyperactivation and dissociation and extreme stress responses. You kind of probably live in that high stress and maybe even like do well in it, right? Like that's might be your sweet spot. I also enjoy being in high stress <laughs> moments, um, not always afterwards, but tends to be where I perform well. Yeah. And you're doing this regularly, and so your baseline of what is—and again, it's, you know, your language around pain and the consequences of that. When you're up here all the time, being able to see it in other people in a way it presents differently, not like someone showing up with a lot of pain that's not like a physical, open, gaping wound, may not register for people who's—that's their baseline. Like, I'm saving this person's life. There's an actual gunshot wound. and. And so it's the complexity of how we're taught to talk about it, how we're taught not to talk about it. We're actually taught like that's weak. I, th- I think about your training and your education and going to law school. Like we're actually asked not to be honest and open about where places are hard. It's part. It's part of these subcultures that we live in. And so vicarious trauma is normalized in our hel- in our helping professions. And the way that I think tr- psychological trauma is minimized and normalized in culture. I I think those sort of things overlap in my mind. But when I was listening to you all talk, I'm like scratching down these notes, and now I can't even read my own handwriting. (laughs) But um, you're talking about power and empowering folks to make decisions and choices about what comes next. And you're talking about peer advocates and the role of, of feeling like the person walking with you. That you can see yourself and and their experience that you feel understood and and the, the support that they're giving you. We talk about when your power and control has been taken away, whether that's a system, right? Like I didn't choose to come to trauma and now I'm being treated. Now I got all these bills and now, oh, this is great. I didn't even choose this, Right. The same thing with the legal system. You're a survivor of violence. You're thrown into potentially a criminal legal system, and you might not even want to be a part of it. That's not your choice, right? And depending on the context and and how that shows up, and you even talked about trust, which is something I'm just like hyper focused on the the Brene Brown marbles of trust in the jar. And you talked about the opportunities to build this trust. All of these pillars that the two of you just sat here like talking about are literally the key pillars of building trauma responsive ecosystems in institutions and it's modeled a lot off of healthcare and Lindsay and I've talked quite a bit about these kind of acute single experiences we've had in in the healthcare setting i'm starting to realize what i didn't have was expectation setting i didn't have experiences of trust i didn't know what was coming next i had bad historical experiences that I was, pre- my, m- the brain is literally designed to like predict how we're going to experience something based off of how we've already experienced it, right? So um, I'll get, I'll share one example and and Lindsay, I'll invite you to share some. And I'm curious how this shows up for you, Aaron, as someone who's, who's inside the subculture of the healthcare system in a very unique context. So when I was just about to be a freshman, I had a growth that developed in my, I don't know what the right sub and something gland. I don't know. You probably know. And I was terrified because it was weird and just uncomfortable, painful. And I couldn't tell my parents. Well, I could have, but I chose not to because I knew the financial costs that would have on my parents. So I had it for about a year and I didn't say anything. And it got really bad to the point where they couldn't take care of it. They had to end up cutting my gland out after a couple of attempts. And I felt very, not only othered by the fact I didn't feel the security to be able to go to my parents and, and put that burden on them, but also the impact of like, I couldn't play volleyball that year. And then that was a really important thing to me. And it kind of came and went. And then I'm very lucky because I, I have one of the best health cares in our country. And I intentionally designed my life that way because of what I experienced as a kid. Because when I had to get my wisdom teeth pulled out, I was paying for it myself as a college student and I didn't get the like anesthesia or no, the thing where they like put you to sleep, whatever, right? That's what it is. I was awake and I like have a very hard time now. And this is, these are minor things when we're talking about the traumas that patients present in your thing. But then I, I couple that with my first daughter. I don't know if I've ever shared this with you. At 13 weeks, we found out that our first baby had an emphalosil. And I didn't know what that was and didn't have a lot of opportunity to go to folks with a parental relationship and and ask questions and learn about that. Had a phenomenal doctor. Shout out to Dr. Yasmin Holsey. I'm sure she'll listen to this too. Phenomenal OBGYN that just happened to come into my life at that time. It turns out she, uh, Joy, we named our daughter Joy, Yasmin, after the doctor, she had um, uh, trisomy 18. And I didn't know it. all new to me, I'm learning this, we're learning about options. 13 weeks later, uh, she, she passed away and I delivered her on a Thursday. I remember this day exactly because the next Thursday was a round table that d- the judiciary in D.C. held for sexual assault survivors. And we had worked for months, Lindsay, to help 16 survivors come in front of the DC council, some with cameras on, some with cameras off. We had this team, Benny, others on your team, they've been over backwards to, we, we prepped them, we did kind of like mock testimony. You know, you just did this yesterday. It's stressful. We worked with these individual survivors, and it was a huge moment in our of the landmark of our our organization that made huge, significant changes. But on Thursday before I delivered Joy, and I went home, amazing medical team, like Howard County, just amazing. Dr. Holsey stayed like over 24 hours. She, she was there. It's just like the power of that team and what they did for me was really beautiful. But we went home, we actually got to keep her, which is very unusual, took her to the funeral home. And and then a month later, not that I don't know what it takes to get pregnant, but all of a sudden we're pregnant again. And I didn't really expect that to happen. You know, I didn't, I didn't really think that was going to be a thing. And about three weeks before I was about to deliver my son, Sebastian, who we call Bash, and it's very fitting. Um, I have Sjogren's and lupus. So I was monitored because my Sjogren's has a tendency to impact the heart and the placenta, which I didn't know. Well, I was learning all this stuff, you know, lots of fun medical stuff. And his heart was not the right sizes in the right places. So they, three weeks before my scheduled um, induction, they moved us to Hopkins. And we met with a little baby heart surgeon. I didn't even know that was a thing. He taught me that a baby heart is about the size of a grape. And they have these fancy glasses they wear where they can go in and they cut them open and they can fix the heart. And I'm thinking, he had a... um, coarctation of the aorta. I've actually, one of our former staff member's husband had one and I was like, I've never heard of this thing in my life. And so this, this trauma, I don't know, this surgeon, surgeon, not trauma surgeon, this heart surgeon walks us through this. We tour the NICU and I got some of the steps, you know, I was getting some of the the pieces of that dark stairway. People were really trying, right? And all of a sudden, all of my fluid and my placenta very quickly goes down. This happened to both of my kids. I have now and so I went in much earlier than I was expected. I, I We were we were planning to have an event, a fundraiser in December, and I
2: called Lindsay. Bridget's like, I'm going to have to be out. I'm delivering my baby today. That's pretty much how it went. I think it was actually an email. I'm not even sure you it, called. I might have texted.
1: I can't remember. To be honest, that's what trauma does, right? And so um, I don't remember, but I remember being upset that I was going to miss this, this event, and— showed up for me is when I delivered joy on a Thursday, I went back to work on Monday because that was an important week. And that, that helped me. And when you've talked about how do we channel these hard moments for me, having focus, having intention, having purpose really helped me move through one of the hardest moments of my life. And now I'm being told that my son who was healthy all the way up to these last three weeks is going to need open heart surgery, right? And I'm going to a hospital. I don't get to have the doctor who has been the pulse of my experience and all of this loss. She can't, she doesn't work there. That's not how that works. So I walk in, well, two things. I've When I walked in to, live, to deliver joy, I was just about 30 weeks pregnant. And I was very small because trisomy, 18 babies don't grow as as big. And it was my first pregnancy. The person at the front of the desk, she looks at me. She's tired. She's in the, you know, people walking into the emergency room. I'm sent here to deliver a baby and I'm not in labor and I'm in trauma And she says, can I help you? And I'm like, "Um, I need to find labor and delivery. And she goes, for what? And I said, I'm going to have a baby. And she didn't know that like what what that really meant. And she was really rude. And it really set the tone for me of, wow, what is this going to be like? Now, thank God, everyone else that came after, they were so amazing and thoughtful and Having sat with a dear friend who's also lost a baby at 30 weeks unexpectedly at another hospital, I had every possible support you could imagine after that. But it really was hard because of that, that first interaction. And then when we go to have Bash, I'm set up to Hopkins two weeks early, unexpectedly, never been to this hospital. Um, I mean, I, I had. I'd never been treated there. They separate me from my husband immediately because they have to do a DV screening and, and (laughs) I, right. But like, it's this complexity (laughs) for me because I'm like, yeah, we do have important like things that we integrated that the DV is very serious and we wanted, but like, I was legit like losing my mind and the way they were doing this was like, there was no choice. I had no choice in this. And I'm like, I can't even unpack the feelings in that. And again, the woman at the front desk was very rude to me. And they had sent me up there. They had scheduled it and sent me up there and she, she didn't get the message or something. And so all of that unfolds. And, um, thank God Bash is fine. He ended up being totally fine. They didn't even have to give him surgery. He's in the NICU for a couple of days and he now loves food. And I say it's because he didn't get to eat the first two days of his life. And so he's like constantly trying to catch up. Um, and he's just, you know, both my kids have been, have just been like joy when I think about, you know, joy and, It's been really amazing. But recently, and I I want you to jump in too, I've had these, you know, it's just sort of you have an an unseen chronic illness that I'm very lucky because, hey, no one knows it impacts me. I get through the day pretty well. And I'm sent to Hopkins because they find this like big grape size mass in my sphenoid. I didn't even know how to pronounce that word, Um, which apparently is very unusual, I find in the medical literature. I'm fine now. Um, but I did the follow-up with a very prominent, very well-known specialist. And, um, I'm in that room. I just told Lindsay the story. This just happened recently. And I'm thinking this woman is finally going to give me some answers. She's the best in the world. I've talked to multiple people. She's the best in the world. How did I get here? I didn't even have insurance as a kid. Like, this is just the universe aligning where this, this unknown thing I've been struggling with conf- that's terrifying me as a parent right? Showing up for my kids all goes kind of back to that story. And I'm in that room and, you know, she's asking me the questions and stuff. And towards the end, she starts to ask me certain questions that feel very irrelevant. And all of a sudden I I have this aha moment that she's not interested. I won't go into the details, but she wasn't interested in solving the problem that I saw. And my eyes got a little bit glassy. I didn't cry, but you know, that moment when you're talking to someone and you just know, all of a sudden you've hit a spot and they're not in the room anymore. And Aaron, I'm sitting there, gown, naked, underneath, right, just like you said, on this bed. And she gets into my eyes while this is happening and says, are you hearing me? And I'm like, yep. And she says, great, you got your homework. And she walks out of the room. That happened. And I tell her this right afterwards. And I'm thinking, we train medical professionals about how does trauma show up in patients? And, you know, if I could do one thing that I think would maybe help other patients that that doctor is inevitably going to see again, I would sit down with her and I would tell her about Joy. I would tell her about my experience at Hopkins. And I would tell her that in that moment, I wasn't in the room because of those things. And I would want her to understand that the person in front of her, while would probably am a complex problem. My neurologist joked, I'm like a big question mark, you know, I probably am com- complex and annoying for some doctors, but what I would want her to know, it's not just that reason that I'm in the room. It's everything that's happened to me in my entire life that I'm bringing into that relationship. Right. And so when I think about the patients that you, you treat, what is the beauty of understanding you're sewing that wound. You're taking, I don't even know what that thing, whatever you're doing, whatever that <laughs> magic is. But somehow you, in, in the moments I've been able to see you in this work, you're infusing this moment of understanding that it's not just that problem in that moment, but these are people that have had histories and lived experiences of pain. And how do we humanize, not just treating that moment, not, not the heartbeat at the door, but the quality of that beat, the contribution of that heartbeat, right? So it's been very stressful for me to think about how I'm <laughs> gonna talk to you all about this. Lindsay, what would or or I'll invite Lindsay because you have your own experience as well. Yeah, I was just gonna
2: say, how do we get? I guess Bridget's question to boil it down is how do how do we get more doctors to be like you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That to that take is the question. To no, but to seriously, to take. That into account, whether you, I think, sort of are self-deprecating, saying you're not great at it. What we're calling trauma, what you're calling pain, piece. But what, from I think our outside standpoint, is you—you you clearly are because you know it exists. You care about it. <laughs> you, you're building. You have, a whole, you have a whole team and system yeah. you're building to deal with it. And so, um, yeah, how do how do we get more people in the medical system? Where are the doctor
1: halls that we can have build these subsystems within the healthcare sector?
3: Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think what strikes me about this is that we're starting to build a language around it, right? Like starting to build a diagnosis or starting to build a plan of care, right? You have your differential diagnosis and in medical ease, you know, you have to have your list of things that could be going on. Then you categorize them. What is the most likely? What is the thing that's most likely to kill you? I'm going to focus on those things. I'm going to toss out the things that it's not because of X, Y, and Z. And then I'm going to get to a diagnosis. And then there's going to be a treatment for it. And we're starting to build that language a little bit around, I don't want to say ignorant, but let's just go with like ill-informed will be like PTSD or PTSI, right? There's some language around vicarious trauma, There's some language around the idea of generational trauma. uh, And then we have this trauma-informed care. There's no way I can be in a room with somebody and know what their experiences were, right? And what it is that I'm going to do that's going to inadvertently be so triggering to them. And they may not be able to tell me, right? But being open and kind and interested and curious, I think, goes so long to make those connections because, in, and we're not, we're not trained to do that. And we're not trained to value that. And we're also not trained to protect ourselves afterwards. And so I love it. And I... I think there's such a beauty to people's stories and experiences. And also, I get that same sort of, there's a clarity and beauty to connection, and it can be wordless. In fact, oftentimes it is wordless. People will say like, oh, I could tell from your eyes. You know, I've been in a situation where I've been like eyes only. It's the only thing I give to the world at my workplace for the past two and a half years. And people will say like, I can tell who you are from your eyes and how you are in the room or other things like that. And and they may respond to that, but I think it is, you can classify that as trauma-informed care. But I think what it really is, what I try to be, and I don't succeed all the time, but is open to that person, to trying to see where they are in the moment, and then trying to understand where we need to get to together. Let them guide it somewhat and let me guide it somewhat because we're forming this relationship together to get someplace we both want to be.
1: Erin, Dr. Hall, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. And for those of uh, you listening, of course, thank you for joining us for the Traumatized podcast. And a special thanks um, not only for your time today, Aaron, but for the work that you do for your team at the CVIP and for the partnership of working to create this restorative ecosystem that we all envision in the district. And as always, we want to hear from our listeners regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for the next discussion and future episodes of Traumatize. And of course, you can follow us or tag us by hashtag Traumatize, T I E S, and tag MBRDC on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation.
2: Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Traumatize podcast whenever you listen. Be well, everyone, and see you next time for more Untangling.
0: This episode of Traumatize is over, but this podcast is just one of our many resources. NVRDC welcomes all survivors of crime and their supporters. So please visit us at nvrdc.org to learn more about how to access our trauma education and had a partner with us to create survivor-defined justice.